0: Hello, and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's episode, I'm proud to bring you my conversation with Mike Selinker. Mike is CEO of Lone Shark Games and a legend in the gaming industry. He's worked on huge properties like Marvel, Disney Animation, and Harry Potter. He's also designed perennial favorites like the Pathfinder card game, Betrayal at House on the Hill, Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition, and far, far more. He's famous for puzzle designs. His puzzles have been published in the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, Games Magazine, and he's also a published author, including the Kobold Guide to Board Game Design. Now, Mike is very self-deprecating in his speaking style, but trust me that this is a master talking about his craft. In this episode, you'll learn how Mike got his first puzzle game published when he was only 13 years old. You'll learn what Mike's collaboration process looks like and how it differs from mine. You'll learn how to get a job in the game industry, how repeated failures can lay the groundwork for success. Mike gives his advice for someone just starting in the game industry today. And you can learn all about the joys and perils of self-publishing and Kickstarter and oh so much more. I know I really enjoy my conversations with Mike whenever I have them, and I hope you guys will enjoy this one as much as I did. Without further ado, I'll give you Mike Selinger. here with Mike Selinker, and I am very excited to get to talk with you. you. You and I have been friends for a while. I've been playing your games for even longer than that. You have an incredibly illustrious career. You've designed things like the Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, Dungeons and Dragons, Pirates of the Spanish Main, Maze of Games, lots of crazy puzzles for the New York Times and Wired, alternate reality games, all kinds of stuff. You've worked with you know the biggest companies in the world, and uh, it's really awesome to have you here. Did I miss anything of, of your resume on there that you you want to share with our listeners
1: i was just liking the part where you basically talked for the whole uh podcast (laughs) i thought that was pretty i thought that was pretty great i mean i think this is going to be a really good podcast for me i do i do love the sound of my own (laughs) voice so that that helps (laughs) hi everybody i'm mike Selinker. this is my friend this is my friend justin gary who is one of the best game designers on the planet if you haven't played his games ascension and soulforge you are missing out go to your internet immediately and buy them
0: Oh, this is this is great. We could just promote each other the whole the whole show. This is working out real well. I like this plan. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you know, one of the goals of this podcast is to really help kind of deconstruct the process of design, the business of design, and how, you know, we can make games and uh, how other people who are listening can learn to make games. And And so for a lot of people, there's the, the idea that you could even get started making games for a living. That this is even something that's possible is is just crazy. So how, how did this happen to you? You started really young. You
1: were, I think, 13 when you had your first published uh, puzzle. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it was not... I mean, there wasn't really a game industry when I started. In a lot of ways, right? I mean, there was there were a few Titanic companies like you know uh, TSR and and a a few others, right? And so uh, I just decided that I could submit something to one of these places, and they should publish it. And they did. Like that's not that's not a thing anymore in some sense. Right. I mean, but we don't have magazines the way we used to have and things like that, but, but, um, but back then, yeah, I think it was just getting over any fear that I might uh be rejected real quickly. And, uh, and yeah, so I, I sent in something to dragon magazine, I think was my first, um, my first place I sent something to, or maybe games magazine, um, but basically around the same time and they both printed them. And, uh, and yeah, I was off to the races. I think there's obviously analogs to that today and like, you know, uh, organized play and, and, uh, convention work and stuff like that. Um, a lot of it was just saying, yeah, I can do this. This sounds cool. That's, that's awesome. And, and I,
0: I, I, Definitely want to underscore the point of that, that being able to overcome that fear of rejection and, and failure is one of the most critical pieces of, of I believe, any creative endeavor, but certainly games and that being willing to like expose yourself to criticism and kind of, you know, get beat up and come back out and, and just being willing to take those chances, probably the most important trait. To, to really kind of make it out there, so that's a it's a great thing. It's amazing that you had that from from such a young age. It takes a lot of us a little longer to uh, be willing to to put ourselves out there.
1: It's also important to know that I did get rejected a bunch of times. Not like they accepted some of my stuff, but not other things of my stuff. Right, and so uh, I had to learn from that. Sometimes I would get back letters that said, "Just be better at things." and i had to not go well i'm just better than you think i am and instead internalize that criticism and become better at it and uh yeah it helps you know it obviously helps if you do it when you're not panicked about making the the bills and uh and you know trying to find time in your full time job to get get but i i think anything really is is better than nothing i uh my my advice to folks is generally be the person known for that thing. Just do something, right? Do something that people say, did you see that thing? It was pretty cool. And uh, and it'll take off from there probably. So the to,
0: to dig into that a little bit, like you mentioned, you know, you started, you submitted your uh, your work to magazines and that some of them got rejected, some of them got published, but that, you know, those magazines in the modern era don't really exist, certainly don't have the traction that they used to. So if you were were starting today, or if you were giving advice to somebody that's starting today, you you're, you know the one piece of advice you said is let's make something great. How do you get people to notice you? How do you get? What would you do if you were you had to start over from from you know ground zero today?
1: Well, first thing I'd probably do is go to a game convention, right? I mean, I'd start by finding out who the publishers of things were and getting to know them. Uh, you know, try to volunteer, try to. Um, demo, try to uh, put put games that I made in front of folks so that they at least got an idea of who I was, right? I mean, there is certainly some sense of trying to be the uh, the person who is uh, aware of your surroundings and what you have to be published in. But the other thing that you have that, no, that I certainly didn't have was the ability to just put your stuff online, right? I mean, the it's so powerful to just drop something on Kickstarter or on RPG now, or just, uh, what's it called? Game crafter, any of those places and just have a place to be able to point people to something you did. That's pretty amazing. So I would just do that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's
0: definitely great advice. I think, uh, going to conventions and, and, and getting in front of publishers. You know, most people in this industry are super, super friendly and really, you know, even if they're not going to publish your stuff, you can usually get, you know, somebody to look at it, somebody to give you advice. And if you take that advice to heart and you are able to keep, you know, keep trying and keep improving, uh, it's worth, it's worth its weight in gold.
1: Yeah. I can give a concrete example of that. Um, I can give several actually. Uh, so there was this young designer out of, madison wisconsin named uh, alexander kobian and he happened to be a fan of our puzzle hunt stuff that we've done at gen con right and so one day he said would you like to see one of the games that i made and i said sure and he, then he asked me who might publish it and i said well i can't but i think mayfair could and they did like i mean it's just that that vector is not terribly hard to understand the the person was interested in what i did he made it clear that it wasn't just a one-way street um then he showed me something very quickly like he didn't take three hours to do it he just sort of said here's the game and i went wow that's really cool and i at gen con i literally walked him over to the booth at mayfair and said you should take a look at this game it's awesome and then they published it like that's a That's not that difficult a path. It won't work 100% of the time, right? But but it isn't really complicated. Um, Another example of this is uh, Liz Spain, uh, one of the designers at Lone Shark, uh, made a game from start to finish on Kickstarter. Uh, It's called Incredible Expeditions. And I happened to be sitting next to her at a convention, and I just looked at it and went, wow, this is interesting. Show it to me. And I, she showed it to me, and I hired her. Like it, it was less than a, less than like three weeks after the point at which I saw her game, because she, she just made it. I mean, she showed from stem to stern that she could make a game, and it was a good game, right? And so, I mean, those aren't like I said that I'm sure there are lots of people who don't go through that process. They they don't know how to do any of those things at school, but understand that for the people who can. It's a very quick process.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the lessons I I, I try to to teach people when I do lectures or in some of the, the articles I've written is, you know, just you need to put yourself out there and provide value, and you will get into. The industry, right? If it's and it can be, you know, maybe you don't already know how to design games. There are plenty of resources to to learn, but if that's not where you're at already, there are other ways you can distinguish yourself, right? If you're right, part of a game community and you're writing great articles and you're writing about whether it's strategy or lore or different things, that you start building a community, then people are going to take notice of you. Uh, I myself was not a designer at all. I was a game player, um, and I got noted for you know, playing magic professionally. And that's what kind of brought me into the industry. And, and a lot of the people that I've hired were people who I was, you know, hanging out at the card shop with, and they just clearly had chops to understand how games tick. And I could see where they could be developed into game designers. And now, you know, now they're amazing, but it, you know, these different, different areas where you f- find where your strength is, find what you're awesome at, and then bring that to the table. And you can kind of use that to get, get leverage into the industry and
1: get to kind of do what you want to do. I think you also hit on something really important there and that, the the word game the phrase game designer is not the only contributing point in the industry right there's so many other things to do and so if if game design isn't the thing you want to do but being involved in the game industry is there are so many opportunities to do so most companies are currently struggling to find people to do quality editing on their products on uh, showing off their games on marketing and sales and graphic design I mean you know it's not like it's not like the industry is just flooded with talent at all positions right and so I think it's really great if somebody comes up um, uh, an ex- another example is I needed a website done for a political thing I wanted to do um, and I couldn't use any of my current website resources because they were making my business website right so I just said I sort of put it out I said does anybody want to do this and a wonderful guy named uh, Sean Garrity said I'd love to do it now I know he's a really good website designer right and so if I get another opportunity to make a website I'm probably going to ask him right that that sequence is is available there's so many people out there looking for help and uh, yeah, I think the really important thing is to not view us as, as uh, filled with barriers. There are some, right? There are some companies who won't look at submissions, who won't. And, and that's cool. But um, a lot of people are willing to. And I think it's worthwhile to just ask. Right.
0: And, and, and I've found, you know, most of the time I will, you know, we have tons of people who will volunteer and do demos at shows or who will be part of our community who we then hire because we see them work. We see them bring value. And it's easy to kind of bring them in house after that, because we know them, we've worked with them. They've built a reputation with us, with our fans. And in addition for, I know I'm I'm sure uh, you have the same boat as I do when you're, you know, running a small company, someone that can wear multiple hats is invaluable. I mean, you know, so if you can handle, you know, managing the website and making and designing games or doing graphic design and, you know, helping with marketing and demos like that's your gold. I mean, that 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 is incredibly valuable. So even developing any subset of these skills together uh, is
1: a huge, huge asset. And I find that uh, you tend to get drawn into the game design and development uh, environment, whether you want to be or not, if you're in that position right like we were putting together the betrayal at house on the hill set that you worked on with me right and uh you know our marketing guy mike uh robles was like could i contribute a haunt and i'm looking at oh my god i have to make 50 haunts out of nothing <laughs> yes mike yes you can contribute on uh my ceo marie was said uh can somebody help me make a haunt? And and uh, Elisa Teague, one of our our core designers on it, said I'll help you make that. Right? I mean, you're going to get dragged in. Yep, yep, that's right. And as as designers,
0: you know, this can also, you know, I definitely want to dig dig more into the process of design, but that ability to bring in other perspectives and bring other people that are either around the company or in your communities to test the games, to give feedback is so valuable. And the more you're around that, the more you're just going to be a part of that process um, as much as you, as you want to be typically. Uh, so just sort of getting your foot in the door and being around the the design process will, will intrinsically get you, get you those opportunities. Yep. Um, I want to dig in a little bit on the the process of, of design and, and what when you start approaching a new project, first of all, how do you how do you decide when you're going to do a new project? What what are the typical things that that kind of get you started and moving down a road saying, all right, I'm gonna make this game?
1: Wow. I mean what you just said sounded a lot more organized than what actually occurs, I think. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure. There are definitely people who uh are good at um, okay, we need to make a product for, you know, Q four 2018. We should start designing it and I don't seem to be that person. Uh, but um, I think that uh, usually I start from a, from a negative position. What, what isn't there or what isn't satisfying my needs in the game industry or in, the, in game playing that, um, that I can come up with something to overcome? Uh, I think the, the clearest example of that, although there certainly have been others, um, was discovering that I no longer had time to play role playing games. Yep, I just couldn't couldn't get a group together. But when I could get a group together, it met uh, every week, pretty much every eleven weeks, right? You know how that is, right? You're, it's, right. And so I was just like, "Why is this happening?" Um, maybe it's because nobody can make the commitment to to invest in the character development or or the design of the the scenarios or whatever something there's something missing. Can I what if the environment instead was much more streamlined? What if you could do it in an hour and you didn't have to prepare and you didn't have to take notes, but you still got the experience of um, of playing in a group and working toward a common goal and, and having variety of adventures and building your character over time. Is that a thing that could occur? And so from the position, I don't have time to do something. I spent four years of my life developing a game where you could, right? So clearly, I don't have a very good time management system. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, that was kind of it, right? I was like, there's a, there's a core idea here that uh, my friend Ryan and I sort of explored together. And then I brought my development crew in um chad brown and gabby Widling and paul peterson to start and then, and then others after that and and it just said there's something here right and they had lots of experience with rpgs and the sort of failure state of campaigns that tend to leave with a whimper rather than a bang and uh yeah we were able to make something out of that so i think that um that's how pathfinder Around, but I think a lot of games come from the position of just sort of making a topic statement. You know, uh, Lords of Vegas came from James and I sitting in a Chinese restaurant, and you know, one of us saying, Wouldn't it be cool to make a game about casinos? and then the other saying, Yes, last I heard um, when people make, uh, I read an article that was that, that showed that uh, casinos tended to be retired about 15 years after they were they were opened which is ridiculously fast for a building of any kind right i mean you wouldn't buy a house that you knew you were going to dynamite in 15 years right and so and these are billion dollar buildings and i was like wow in that environment your value would start to deteriorate immediately upon starting your business that's an unhealthy business in a general sense you want value to increase over time and instead what was happening was shiny new casino on the block and then then downward path from the beginning I'm like can i can that be modeled in a game and sure enough when you're sitting across from James Ernest the answer is usually yes <laughs> right he he came up with this incredible idea for a game that That involved a a track around the outside, a number track around the outside that that all the numbers didn't appear on, right? You started seeing these gaps appear. Suddenly, things were jumping by twos and then by threes and then by fours. And all of a sudden, the things that you did early on to make your little casinos that look shiny and new were suddenly useless, and you needed to expand them. And so Lords of Vegas came out of that that kind of process. And it's usually some combination of coming up with a really great topic sentence. I guess somebody would call that a theme, but I think that's overstating it. And, uh, you know, one or two just killer mechanics that you go, yeah, we totally have to make that now. So,
0: uh, so unpacking that, what I hear is that for things like Pathfinder, this was very much about kind of scratching your own itch as far as like I, this game doesn't exist the way I want it to. I want a role playing experience that I can have in an hour without a lot of prep. And that's what created that. With the the Lords of Vegas one, it sounded a little bit more like you had a cool, like a concept of saying that's an interesting feature of the world. I wonder how I'd represent that in the game. And that yeah. kind of puzzle almost of uh is kind of what drove you.
1: I think so. Yeah. I, I also sort of had in the back of my mind, I don't know, this is kind of a stupid way to go through life. I don't recommend it. But I would look at games. I often look at games and think, "What is my version of that game? What is the game that's let that I could make that's like that thing I like?" Um, and I'm a big fan of the game Acquire. Great game. And so, well, yeah. Well, I mean, Lords of Vegas isn't Acquire, like, but you can see the DNA going through Acquire in Chinatown and getting getting to Lords of Vegas. Um, And then sometimes, like in the case of Pathfinder, nothing exists in that path. It has, the the genre has to be created. And that's much harder, obviously, in a lot of ways, because you have no touchstones. You have no idea what anybody would like. You can put a lot of effort into something that nobody wants. So you kind of have to hope when you're creating a new game genre that you actually hit the first time, because it can be incredibly expensive if you don't uh yes
0: definitely uh mrs uh mrs can be rough
1: <laughs> i'm saying this to the man who decided that his tabletop uh card game could become a digital app right and i'm sure you looked around at all of the other games that fit that description at the time and said i want to do just like they did right <laughs> not yeah not exactly <laughs> yeah, I mean, there wasn't anything you had no models whatsoever right <laughs> I mean, the only thing you had to go on was you know magic online you know magic the digital application of magic was like uh and that was like a million years from where you ended up
0: yeah that's right and 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 i mean when you talk about the sort of uh, the cost of failure uh, and the, you know, the cost of sort of missing the mark uh, is so much dramatically higher in video games sure. and in digital game production than in physical game production. Just the, I mean, the scales are ludicrous as someone who has spent millions <laughs> on <laughs> making digital games. Yeah. I could, I could tell you it's a, you know, you, you, I just, it's just impossible to lose that much money on a physical game. <laughs> oh, um, I don't
1: know. I'm doing my best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't see if I can. I can take that job. No. Uh, <laughs> I challenge think, accepted. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, one of the great things about Kickstarter uh, has been that it can like putting out a card game isn't actually all that difficult. And so, while it is not not difficult, it's not a zero challenge. The challenge—you don't have to learn to program, right? You learn have to you have to learn how to call a printer. Like those are (laughs) those are pretty different skill sets. One of those should take you about three years, and one of them should take you one phone call. And so uh, that's been fantastic, I think, for the game industry because people aren't letting people don't have a barrier to success that is based on their skill set.
0: So you started on on a process. So then what does your process look like after that? You've got, okay, I know this is the kind of game I want to make. I'm going to
1: try. What do you do next? Um, I get a lot of people together. Like this is the step that uh, a lot of people simply do not do. And that's totally cool for them. Uh, I do not understand how anyone gets anything done on their own. Uh, I instead... So uh for example, with Apocrypha, um there was a point at which it was it went from being a pretty good idea to uh a something with a system in it. And uh I went off to my friend Keith Baker's house and I, I wrote for a week. I just hung out in his basement and wrote. And then I came back and I just said everybody was Excited to see me come back and, and presumed I had done something competent. And uh, they, I, I gathered everybody together and just said, let me talk for a while. Um, I'm sure you'll have lots of questions, and I'm sure everything I'm about to say is wrong. But just let me talk for a while. Everybody agreed. And then I started mapping out everything I had come up with on the whiteboard in my office. And everybody was patient, and they took notes and so forth. And then at some point, I said, uh, okay. I think I'm done talking and everybody sort of looked around and went, that's really great. Now we have a million questions and they, they tore it apart. And, uh, uh, but, but fundamentally, uh, what I got from that meeting was, uh, people who knew that they were necessary for the process because they had identified the weaknesses and the ability to fix the things that were in my, in my initial design. And so from that point on, everybody had a role. Everybody knew what they were doing. And uh, and that, that helps me a lot. I, I find that if people are all uh, waiting for me to finish something and then expecting to carry it over the line, I think that's going to produce a worse result than if we're all involved early on in the development of it. Even if it is really just one person's idea. I mean, the... Um, Thornwatch comes from Mike Krahulik, uh, basically working on his own for a long time. And then he come, came to me and showed it to me, and I went, this is really good. Um, they asked if we wanted to make it. And I said, yeah, but it means we're going to put a team together. And then since that point, he's had Rodney Thompson, who made uh, Lords of Waterdeep, and um, he's had Chad Brown, who made the Pathfinder Adventure Card game with me. Uh, and he's had, uh, you know, me and and other folks just constantly in this swirl of ideas and then we'll meet once a week and then people will go off and do the things they're best at. And I think that I mean, for me, working in a team is, is really necessary. I do plenty of writing on my own, plenty of game design on my own, but, but not for very long. Um, I don't know. Are, Are you like that? Um, I I
0: love uh working in teams. I love being able to get constant feedback and support. I, I think my process it's often a little bit more uh single point designer focused. Um a lot of times it'll be, you know, the you know, I'll go off and I'll work on a you know, getting a file together and getting a process together, prototype it, bring it out to everybody, get all the feedback. do a review, and then kind of go back away again, fix it, come back, do it again. Um, Sometimes we'll break stuff down into components and assign it out to different people. Um, uh, And and getting that feedback and ideas from as many smart, talented folks as I can is always critical. Um, But based on what you're describing, I think my process is a little bit more like single point kind of lead, design lead focused uh, than it sounds like. Uh, yours is maybe it's just a matter of emphasis
1: yeah i know i probably but i mean i'm definitely at the far end of the collaborative spectrum as is obvious by the credit lists on, on most of my stuff right i mean yeah i probably could have designed the trailer at house on the hill widow's walk by myself but i thought it was cooler to have you and the rest of my friends um, contribute fantastic ideas for it and uh and you know i mean Uh, I think I get rewarded for that in a couple of very positive ways. The first is I think I sell a lot of copies of things based on, you know, having really good blenders of ideas all in one place and, and finding the best thing and cutting through the bad ideas and just drawing out the most amazing stuff. But the second is I also get the vector of all those people interacting with their fans, right? Uh, I think that there's, there's such a sense that uh, these collaborative processes make something that people will see their fandom reflected in no matter where it comes from. And so I enjoy it a lot. I do make things by myself though. I, I would say that the, the maze of games was, was me and then Gabby um, just basically sitting together and, Knocking it out like just just it's us. This is a very personal project. We're going to make it, and then bringing in um, uh, Tanis to edit it and Pete to do the art and the graphic design from Elisa was was a, still an incredibly small team by comparison to many of the other things that we we make, and that that felt a lot more personal. And I think it it shows in some ways. I don't look at Widows Walk and say. That's my game. Even though my name is on the box, I look at it and say that was a pretty fun group of people to hang out with. Yeah, that was that was an awesome
0: project. I was I was honored and super excited to be invited to to, to do a little part uh, for that because it's you know a game I grew up on and to be able to kind of contribute there is, uh, it was great. And I know I'm sure that uh, all the other designers uh, felt very similar that got a chance to participate. So that yeah, was, that was very cool.
1: I think the great thing about the product is I never showed the totality of it to anyone. Uh, during the process i i didn't let anybody get overwhelmed by the fact that we were doing the first expansion to a game in 12 years and and you know now it's a now it's a classic now it's part of history and so you're caught up in it i was just like no let's just focus on your thing right let's you and me talk about clowns in the hallway of gamma right <laughs> that's basically what we did right? <laughs> yeah that's and right and we were like right. this this aspect i think works great this aspect could be could be cooler and and so you didn't have to worry about the other hundred plus pages in the game we just had to worry about your thing and uh, that process was really good I felt that you know some people like you really experienced game designers you know I didn't really need to have deep mechanics discussions with right I was like I was pretty sure your mechanics were gonna be great we're gonna test them out let you know if we find anything. Come back to you, you know, make some suggestions. Here's how the pie throwing I think should work, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Real, real sort of basic uh, game designer to game designer conversation. Um, with other people like um, Anita Sarkeesian or the Double Clicks or, or stuff like that, this is really the first time they're they're doing anything like this. So the conversation is much at a much uh, more ten thousand foot view at some point. It's like, okay, what do we want to happen? What are, what are cool things that could occur in this context? What does it feel like? And then run off to the corners and say, okay, guys, Anita and I came up with a mechanic for, uh, or for, for a concept of plastic people all over the house. Uh, how do we replicate those people? You know, how do they, how do they spawn? You know, and then come back to Anita and say, came up with this. What do you think? You know, I, I think that there's there's lots of different collaborative processes, and uh, and it's it's cool to be cool to be a part of them all. But I, I shouldn't over over dramatize it. I really do value time just sitting by myself or with my dog on my lap and knocking out game concepts.
0: Yeah, and I, and I'll actually just underscore that that there's a point in there too that that setting aside time to work on. Games to work on the creative projects. It's shocking how many people who say they want to make games don't don't do that. I mean, it, it it's not you know the the creative creative genius is not uh, something that's kind of out there. It's something that you just work and work and work, and you make lots of really crappy things. And every now and then you get something awesome, and then you can start showing that to other people and start moving things around, moving things down the road. And just that setting aside time to have peace and quiet and work in you know an environment that, that that suits you and and just kind of create stuff uh
1: critically important yeah i don't understand how i mean we talked earlier like you know now there's no barrier to entry you can come in you can do it but, but i think the biggest barrier to entry is actually time to get good at things um uh, you know i mean i have i have my ten thousand hours in, right right from malcolm malcolm gladwell's outliers right i mean i have I have done that, and so when people come to me and they say, "I've got an idea," and I can say, "Well, here's the problem with your idea. I've got I've got some basis for that." And so, if you don't have time to make that a skill set and a and a um and 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 f- iterate and fail and iterate and fail and iterate and fail, um, I don't I don't know how you get anything done. I don't I don't understand. How I mean, there are definitely people who have hit like right out of the gate with their first idea, um, without any of the time to do that, and I am just in awe of that. Uh, you know, the um, William Atia made the game Kalos, Uh and I met him in at Essen. And I, I don't know, have you played Kalos? I really like, I really like that game. I uh,
0: I I haven't played through a full game, but I've you know read the rules and watched. I'm familiar with it.
1: So I mean, it's it's very much you know, it is a definition of a euro game, right? And uh, yeah, and and you know, I met him as young guy. I was like, "How did you get to the point where this was ready?" And he just went, "Well, I made my first version and people liked it, so I took it to a publisher." I'm like, "What <laughs> is that a thing? <laughs> That's a thing that can happen because <laughs> because I don't do that. I mean, I don't." I come up with good ideas on my first try, but they're not publishable, right? I mean, I don't think they are anyway. So every now and then I have a game like um, like Sausage Party, right? Which was, it just, a. Uh, I came up with it and I just said, I think this is good and it's ready to go, or unspeakable words is like that too. Yeah. But I don't know if Bad Beats was like that for you. Bad Beats was pretty fast. It was pretty
0: fast, uh, you know, and, the, the the but I still I mean I still went through hundreds of iterations it's just sure. the game was the game took 5 minutes to play so hundreds of iterations went very quickly yeah,
1: exactly <laughs> exactly yeah um no I just I I'm not I mean I'm sure William worked very hard on the game after he took it to that publisher but but I don't yeah I don't have that experience I have the I come up with a big picture view of what I think might work and then I work on it for a year or more Before it's before it's ready to show, yeah. Thankfully, I have other things to do in that year. Like I'm not like solely dependent on the idea I just had to make us make us uh, have money on our table. I mean, I like you. I have a small company. Um, We have about ten people plus a whole bunch of freelancers, and uh, you know, we need we need uh, to have to have things that we did, things that we did three years ago are paying our salaries today. Right. Right. Because if it was just, I came up with this today, it's got to pay our bills, you know, in three months. That's just not a thing I have. That's not a thing I can do. Yeah. And, uh, and so thankfully I've got enough resources in place that the things we did three years ago are still doing a good job of paying, paying our salaries.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's one of the things I was, you know, try to have sort of a balance of like where, you know, we spend time on our bread and butter and working on the next Ascension expansion and the next SoulForge expansion. We spend time, you know, sort of working on new, very speculative projects. We spend time finding partners and other people that we want to work with or new IP we want to work with to kind of build out projects for that. And, And having that sort of balance in a portfolio, um, I found to be really critical to, to keeping a company going and, and not going crazy uh, when when something doesn't work or an idea takes longer than you think it's going to take.
1: Yeah, I've been our company's been around for thirteen years, mostly because of that philosophy. People will say to us, "Why aren't you just working on Apocrypha all the time until you get that done? Why would you take time to work on Betrayal at House on the Hill or something?" I'm like, "Well, a we want to, but b the creative process isn't linear. Uh, we don't just." come in and make, you know, isn't there like there's a progress bar um, and we come in and it's at 68% today and we leave and it's at 72% the next day. Like that's just not a thing that happens with us. Ours is a much messier creative process because some things just don't work. With the Wrath of Righteous set for Pathfinder, um, we made a really solid functional game mechanic for um, how the concept of mythic characters, superheroic characters, would work in our game. Um, and it was great. We, we played it. We sent it to playtest. Uh, we had like 100 playtest groups. And it completely failed. I mean, it 100% failure that we did not see coming at all. And people were like, this is functional. Obviously, it all works together. It's just not any fun. And we went, oh, wow, that's... Really bad. Is it bad that your game's not fun? Is that a yeah. problem? <laughs> so that's, that's one of your higher order problems. Um, <laughs> so, so we went back and we did it again and we said, all right, scrap that. We need to come up with a totally different way to express, uh, you know, superheroic progression. Let's, okay, got it. We figured it out. Sounds good. We built it. We played it. We liked it. We sent it to playtest and it failed. Completely failed again. And now our publisher, Paizo, is saying, well, when are you going to be done? Um, and we're like, not until this works. And we went back. We actually got a real value from having our friend Max Tumpkin at uh, Cards Against Humanity come over um, to just playtest with us. And we, I said, you know, Max, you're a good game designer. Let me tell you what's bedeviling us today. And he sat down and he said, okay, well, let me try this idea after a little discussion, and he took a way that we'd never thought of doing so. He said, you know, can you get uh, can you get Paizo to pay for a token sheet? Our game doesn't have any tokens. And said, yeah, we could probably do that. What do you have in mind? And he basically took a whole bunch of coins and started using it to represent mythic power. And I was like, holy cow, we never saw that. And we played it, and we liked it, and we sent it to playtest, and they loved it. And we went, okay, we just needed essentially a brain infusion. We were, and, and that process took, that process was incredibly messy. Um, that, so much lossiness happened in that process. But by the end, we were really good space for that. But it was because we had the ability to get other people to look at our games, both as our playtesters and our collaborators. And get beyond our view of what was a good idea.
0: Yeah, yeah. This sort of reminds me of the uh, common adage in in design's like, you know, when you're ninety percent done, you've only got another ninety percent
1: to go. <laughs> <laughs> i hadn't heard that. But yeah. I do like that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's pretty great. Um, yeah. I mean, I, what's your playtest process like? I mean, do you guys have a bunch of external playtesters? What do you do?
0: Yeah, we have we have external playtester groups that we use. Um, you know, we have uh, uh, you know, obviously we play we play in house a, a ton and, and and work through things. We have a, a lot of you know for our different games, especially for the established brands, it's much easier to have playtest groups. We have a bunch of Ascension playtest groups, a bunch of Soulforge playtest groups. Uh, when you have new games, uh, we usually keep the circle a little bit smaller. And then I will actually just I'll go to the local game stores. I'll go to different events. When we do conventions, I'll show them off to people um, and just kind of get that that face to face, like really see see how people react and uh and and get that feedback which is absolutely critical um and That's yeah true. and and so it's it's my favorite one of my favorite things of all time is actually getting to be at the conventions see this full spectrum of people like playing your finished game and being really excited about it and seeing your fans and then getting people to play your like brand new game and seeing how confused they look and how unhappy they are and what things you've got to change one, of, one,
1: one time uh, recently um our CEO Marie sat in on one of our playtests, and I'm sure you've had this experience. But for other people, it can be incredibly baffling, where they're they're playing for a while, it's going fine, and then suddenly one of the developers will say, "Let's talk about this," and then a 30 minute discussion breaks out in the middle of the game, right? Because you're like, yep. "We have to resolve this before we can even move on in this turn." That's right? right. And she, that's she right, said. Um, let me ask you guys a qu- after like five minutes of this or 10 minutes of this, let me ask you guys a question um, do you think that you need to resolve this before we can go on and can I help you with that you know immediately the guys are like well yeah no we'd love your well actually no this this one issue requires vastly more knowledge about, the system than than you have at the moment. So you probably aren't going to be able to help us with that. She said, okay, great. And she went back to doing her email until they were done (laughs) with that. And then she jumped back into the game, right? I mean, like, that was fascinating to me to to know that happened because, you know, it showed tolerance on everybody's side. Like the guys wanted to make sure she was interested in helping until the point they realized that they literally were the only people in the world who could solve their own problem. Right, no other people could help them with that because what they were trying to do was patch a hole in the game that was that was evidenced by something that Marie did that they had just simply never seen could exist.
0: That's right. Yeah, there's there. That's I mean, that's where the value of playtesting and outside outside play comes in because they you bring so many preconceived notions and assumptions in when you make a game and when you start playing that game and somebody else that doesn't have those going to knock you upside the head and make you realize oh okay wait i didn't think of this and this and that means this thing doesn't work and then i have to redo you know and it just kind of has this cascade effect where you know games are very sensitive creatures and you know you change one knob and then everything else has to be readjusted to refit to that yep. uh, so yes we've had many of those yep. we've had a five minute you know five minutes of a game that turned into an hour and a half of discussion uh on a regular basis so. yeah
1: and I, I think that nobody's prepared for that they think that um they think that uh, what we do is play complete sessions of games and then go off and discuss them, right? And that yeah. just that doesn't almost ever happen.
0: That's right. Yeah, not till till very very late in the process usually.
1: Yeah, and it's, and that and when it's happening like that, you realize you're in a pretty good spot. Like that's right. You, uh, we were playing um, uh, the base set for Apocryphon is basically done, and so we were playing the last sort of missions to just. Make sure we didn't have a flaw somewhere, right? And and they were just zipping by, and we we're just like, "Does anybody have any comments on that?" And people would go, "No, seem great, seem great, yep, okay." And you know, when, uh... you, when you hit that, you know, it feels so good when when everybody says, "No, I don't have any changes," right? Yep. Um, but you take a long time to get there, and uh, you know, I, I don't know what it's like to um to not have like I, I can't imagine hiring somebody who uh, who didn't understand that I wanted them to be brutally honest to me right like um the the fact is uh, there's a rule at loan shark which is nobody gets to be right just because of who they are. And so you know I can get on there and I can say, look guys, you're just gonna have to trust me on this. And everybody will just sort of look at me. I go, "Oh, right. That doesn't work, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't get to do that. <laughs> uh, I, I have to prove everything. Prove it is the the central ethos at Lone Shark, and we've discovered that it's really bad in our interactions outside of the design team. Sometimes, you know, because we'll be challenging people in the same way we are in the design team. Like, why can't we just accept that this is the way this is? Yeah, because uh, I just told you it was, and I'm like, "Oh right, no, guys, guys, that actually is how the world operates." <laughs> um, you go, you don't go, you don't get on a bus and then uh, say to the driver, "Prove to me that you're going to drive this bus downtown." <laughs> you instead note that you got on a bus that said downtown on it, <laughs> and that's the way it's gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> right there's no point where we take a poll of the bus riders to see if people still want to go downtown midway through <laughs> right and just like but you know it's hard to get out of that design mode of nope seriously you have to prove everything you do otherwise we don't trust it. yep yep um, and i think for us obviously the reason we were that hard on each other is because we know what it's like when the customer finds the things we should have figured out on our own that's the worst the worst
0: and it always, it always it's going to happen, right? But yeah, but you want to avoid it as much as possible. Way better to to beat each other up than to get right. beat up by customers or have them not have the best experience they could have.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, everybody feels worse then, so it's much better to feel like twenty percent bad uh, during during the design session than to feel a hundred percent bad after the game comes out. Right.
0: Yeah, and that and that just digs into the the idea of like being able to argue well in a way that is you know that we are going to have different positions and we're going to have to defend our positions but it's a way that everybody on that team knows we're all working towards the same goal trying to make the best product that we can and your ego never gets too tied up in it whatever your favorite idea is it's about serving the game and getting to that best product and and i know a lot of designers that you know i've worked with in the past had a lot of trouble with that where they they are fine working on their own but if somebody doesn't like their idea then it it creates this friction, and that just is not going to lead to the best
1: product. I think it's great to see um, like uh, two of our designers, Chad Brown and Liz Spain, can get really heated with each other. Um, uh, They can get pretty up in each other's grill about, you know, I don't know why you can't see this. I am trying to explain it to you. Uh, You do not understand, and you need to understand. And then somebody will come and say, uh, who wants to go to lunch? And we'll go to lunch Where everybody's great. Right. Right? Because they don't, they, 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 their method of communication is to be passionate and to be, uh, you know, defending their their position and so forth. But they know at the end of the day, we're just making games. Yep. Right? I mean, it's just, it's not like, we'd much rather be be friends with each other than agree with each other all the time
0: yeah no i i I generally uh work hard to surround myself with people that disagree with me a lot yeah. uh, it, it's, i I enjoy that process uh and uh, and feel like it makes me better even if even if I think they're wrong, the fact that I have to defend myself and articulate my position makes makes me better at doing what I do.
1: We do understand we're mutants, though, right I mean like nobody else is like.
0: Oh, that's, oh, that's totally right. Like I, I, in high school, I was voted most likely to disagree with anything you say. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I described, I had, it took me a really long time. It wasn't until college that I realized that most people don't like arguing. Uh, and, I had uh, what I called a, a broken pissed off a meter sure. like I couldn't I didn't even realize that people were getting really angry when I was like debating but, uh, with
1: them I at least have a good I at least have a good sense of that but
0: but yeah I figured <laughs> it out I figured it out since then but yeah. uh, but yes I love it when I can I, I I I try to surround myself with people who sort of feel similarly about the values of debate and and disagreement and in, in in learning and, and strengthening and understanding I have a
1: question for you about uh, some of the people that that you work with how many of people that you've worked with came from the sort of competitive environment uh, that you came from the, the sort of you know, gameplay is a, a competitive money-making aspect? Um,
0: quite, quite a few. Um, you know, I think, it's uh, a lot of them. Whether you know, not as many sort of made a living doing it, sure. um, like like I did, but certainly you know, uh, Brian Kibler and uh, a lot of the people that I've worked with that that do do that and still and still make a living doing that sort of thing. Uh, and 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 the the, ma- the majority of the people that I've hired at least played competitive gaming at some level.
1: It's interesting. The reason I ask that is because my crew is almost entirely co-op and RPG design, right? Like like. um None of them have ever done the you know play for play for cash uh, environment. None of them have, you know, been told over and over again that that competition is the the main thing. And yet, I sense our teams would be very similar, despite having, you know essentially been taught exactly the opposite lessons
0: well i uh, uh, so uh, and i i want to this will this will be a good transition cuz i i really want to i want to dig into a lot of the aspects of game design that i think you are just the best in the world at and areas where i i have a lot to learn from you and and some of that is that that storytelling and world building component i think your you and your team do a, a, an amazing job of putting the story that comes across the world that comes across being immersed in the game as you play. Um, and, and I, I, I want to, I want to dig into kind of how that comes about for you. Like when, you know, what the, you know, like Apocrypha and the different things that I can see come to life there. And I mean, obviously, you know, building act, you know, the classic RPGs and worlds and Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder. And and it just, I, I feel like I am there and I am a character in this world when I'm playing. How, how do you achieve that what's what is it that you think separates you from from you know other games and designers that are out there
1: sure I mean obviously um i, I also have uh, game designers that I think are really good at that so i'm I'm not gonna wholeheartedly accept your your painting of me as as some sort of titan in this regard but um but yeah I mean we certainly do stress that quite a bit i think um uh a lot of it is me myself right like that that my interest is is not piqued by a mechanics only game as much as a lot of other people's is so i mean i personally come at it like what's the what's my motivation you know like the, the right. actors do right uh, but um uh i i really try very hard to surround myself with people who are better writers uh, than I am, and I think I'm pretty good, but, uh, but you know, when we made Apocrypha, I was like, wow, I'm going to write something that's about fractured memories. That sounds like a really cool subject, and I can write some, and I wrote up a bunch of them, and I think they're pretty good. Now, Pat Rothfuss, would you please write some of these and show me whether whether I write the best of these? The answer, of course I don't. I just gave this to Pat Roth. I just gave it to Jerry Holkins and Aaron Evans and kids Johnson and Keith Baker and, you know, people who just, and I said, look, I need, I need a filtration system that produces just the best stuff in this regard. And that's the same thing on, on betrayal, right. With all the authors. So it's just like, I'm going to the most creative humans that I know to try to try to get the best ideas. So part of it is definitely, well, I want to be immersed in the world so I surround myself with the people who can immerse me in my own world um, I think the uh, the other thing we do is that we spend a lot of time working on the concept of tension in our games maybe more than than anybody else does I think um, we spend most of our development time trying to strike interesting balances between, decisions about time and and resource management that uh give you the illusion that you're sort of in this pressurized setting um i don't think i think if you fail to do that then you give people sort of an excuse to check out and check their phones and stuff like that and in our games that doesn't tend to happen much because you're we've spent so much effort on trying to create this knife edge that you're always standing on that uh, in Thornwatch, you don't look away on other people's turns because if they don't succeed at their thing, then as a group, you are in real trouble. And so you need to help them. And so I think those two things are pretty important. Like you want to get the, the most deep, fascinating writing and art and such that you can get. And then you have to surround it, or, or put it around. Actually, um, this incredibly tight set of tense mechanics, or all the work in the first part will be reduced to nothing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, that. That definitely comes across in 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 the games that you, that you do. And I think, you know, for me, when I think about storytelling in games, it's you know, there's the one aspect which is, okay, yes, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a theme and there's, there's the art and there's the actual written story and flavor on the cards, but there's the, the, you know, the story that the players are telling during the game, which is what's, what's critical, right? And that's where that, that idea of rising tension, that idea of like your character, your persona developing throughout the game and having these different critical choice point moments that determine, you know, who you're going to be and what the game is going to turn, play out as like that, you know, that, That interests me a ton in the way that like what, how, how games tell stories and how players tell stories through games is very different than how you tell a story in a movie or in a book where there's this sort of linear process that has this, you know, kind of neat tie-ins and everything kind of fits in together here. It's, it's a lot messier in a world of games because you don't, you don't control the, the, as a designer, you don't control the full story. You, you can kind of set the, put the set pieces down and, and kind of push people and, and, and create those little tension moments, but it's really the players that tell that story.
1: I think our games try to uh, emulate how poker players talk about bad beat stories, <laughs> right? I mean, we, we, uh, we want... People tell the story of playing a game of Pathfinder. They don't say, I said, very often. They talk about what I did, right? But what I did is surrounded by so much backdrop, right? It isn't, I ran into a 9-9 creature, right that's that's not how you talk about your games of magic right right you talk about how you you know uh you know oh my god the the uh, i I was able to cast verdant shield and that was the only thing that stopped the the army of driven from from running over us right and so um people tell stories about the stories we tell them which is pretty great i mean it's it's pretty great um and I think that not not all games need that to be successful. Like I, I don't really describe anything about a game of Carcassonne that I play, even if it is a particularly great game of Carcassonne. Like there's just nothing about Carcassonne that makes me say, "Oh, the great thing is I was really careful in concealing that I had that last farmer right. on the field." Like you never say that stuff. Because that game doesn't need it to be great. Right. Right. Uh, but when you have set up the belief that your game needs it to be great, it better be great.
0: Yeah. I think uh, I've I've heard this term, uh, you know, re- referred to as the bomb uh, that, that games need to have these very high tension moments, these kind of, low probability can't believe that happened moments which is what you get in the bad beat stories it's what you get in you know those high drama getting the right card off the top of the deck uh things and and some games do a better or worse job of having that but those are the things that create those those memorable stories those like just oh my goodness and you tell your friends about it
1: yeah i i think that we just try really hard to make sure that that, that happens i think we also need um to acknowledge that sometimes we're we're building the world ourselves. And sometimes we just happen to be surrounded by the best world builders. Yeah. So uh, with you know, um, the Pathfinder adventure card game didn't need to be the Pathfinder adventure card game. It could have been Mike Selinker's fantasy dungeon bonanza. Right. <laughs> right. Except they had, you know, 15 amazing adventure paths for me to base our stories on. And, and every now and then we say, Oh God, it would be really cool if we had a type of thing that made you examine, examine your decks more often. What would, what would you do that with? Oh, look, there are nine varieties of Cyclops in this world, right? Like, like just surrounding yourself with the tools that you need to make this, make this happen. I mean, one of the reasons Apocrypha is taking so long is, we built the whole thing from scratch. There's 600 pieces of art in the thing. Right. Because we needed to make sure that it told the story we wanted to tell. And uh, that's why working, you know, our next project after that was working with Monty Cook Games on The Ninth World because we wanted to tell a, a, a fascinating future story. And what better than somebody who'd already put out uh, something that was a billion years in the future and freed us from, you know, all the like. It, it would be a really different game if it was set ten years in the future or a hundred years in the future, because you'd expect all these things to be true. But a billion years in the future, now therein you can state, okay, all we can start our storytelling from scratch here, right? We don't have to. And and that's what we were looking for. And so, yeah, I I think it's worked really well for us to um to. Uh, to both create our own properties and to make other people's properties better. Uh, and I hope we get to strike that balance. You know, I wrote a book called Puzzle Craft, um, which is about how to design every type of puzzle that I know how to design. And my friend Thomas Snyder, who's a logic puzzle designer, co-wrote it with me. And, um, and it's there to say, okay, in bite-sized chunks, you want to try to do this kind of puzzle? Try this process. It may not be the only process to make this thing, but try it. And uh and that that will help. But I mean, uh, I think that the the thing is when we talk about game design, when we're talking about card game design, we're talking about a very small set of skills that have a lot of variation to them, right? Like, okay, nobody I don't know, maybe this is true. I mean, ask you. Is there anybody in your company who only does uh treasure design as opposed to monster design. Like, no, no. nobody fits that description. It's not true at Lone Shark. Everybody's job is to design every type of card in a card game. Um, no, there are no specialists in armor at Lone Shark, <laughs> right? Like, that's not a thing I for, right? But there really are specialists in puzzle design. Right. So uh, there are people who can't design word puzzles but can design really good logic puzzles or people who can design... Logic puzzles, but have no sense of spatial dynamics. Like I am like that. I'm bad at space. Um, I uh, I can do um, procedure very well. So I can say, you know, the logic puzzles that are like uh, there are five people with and and who in some combination have the last name Smith, Jones, you know, that kind of thing, right? I can design those really well, but um, if I have to design a thing. Where I have to keep track of, you know, like shapes that go together um, or number strings and stuff like that. then I start to get worse at the job than than some other people, right? So each of those little puzzle processes requires some time to build, and there's hundreds of them. So you you have to just sort of not try to be, an expert in everything right at the gate um i know people who are puzzle makers and they who call themselves puzzle makers and literally the only thing they can make is crossword puzzles because and that's fine because there are people who will pay them to produce crossword puzzles forever but if i turn to them and say i need you to make a a, a, a japanese logic problem they just look at me like i don't know what you're talking about and right and I turned to those different people. I say, I need you to make Japanese logic problems. And if I asked them to make a crossword problems, they would have no idea how to make it. Yeah. So, um, but so yeah, it's a bunch of little micro skills. But the the most important thing in the books that we've written on the subject is we, we try to teach people to design puzzles in the order and process that the solvers will solve them. Um, that's the number one uh, advice that I give people. So people get like, Oh, where's my cleverest bit? Oh, you know what? Let me build everything around that. It's not really what you want to do. What you want to do is like start from a place where you can imagine people writing or, or solving and they will then follow you through that exact process that you build. Um, uh, the, there's one slight variant is that sometimes you can start from the end and work backwards. Like you start essentially, uh, figuring out where they'll end up and build build uh, the process backwards to get to the point where they'll start. Either way, the point being what you want to do is sort of put your mind in the mind of your solver the whole time, and you'll get a pretty good puzzle out of it as opposed to if you try to abstract yourself well out of the picture, um, then you'll probably end up with something that's very abstract. Yeah. I like that. So it's either basically
0: start start with the kind of the simplest hook that that people will likely find first or yeah. start with the end in mind and then kind of let figure out how to work backwards from there.
1: Exactly. Like I mean, I think it's there's a parallel here in deck design, you know, when we make cycles for for various card games, um we're thinking what do people want to do with that cycle, right? What do, what do we want them to? to uh, what do we want that special deck to be? We're not thinking what does each of the cards do, right? We're just thinking what are they getting out of playing this particular way? And then along the way, we go, okay, well, well to get them to that point, they're really going to need a set of engine cards, you know, low power cards that they can get going early, and then they're going to need a really big payoff card that they can't fire off right at the beginning but maybe they can get access to if they do some clever trick right um if you put yourself in that mindset for building a a deck you can put yourself in that mindset for building a puzzle awesome awesome that's great and i'm
0: uh I've seen. I sat in on uh, on one of your uh, your classes on this uh, at uh, at Pax Dev, so that was that was my first real introduction, which was great. Yes, uh, I uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know about the book, so I'm gonna I'm gonna hunt that down.
1: It's all good. Um, I will say that uh, you just mentioned something that I you know we've been spending a lot of time talking. If somebody made it through all of this, then they're probably a a game designer or puzzle designer uh, at heart. Um, you guys should come to Pax Dev. We have a really good convention. Uh, it is in. In uh, late August or early September every year at in Seattle and it's a thousand of the smartest people teaching all, everybody else how to be awesome
0: yeah I uh, I'm gonna second that uh, recommendation I've uh, I've attended backstaff for many years and I've been able to uh, to speak there uh, and uh, uh, for several of them and, and it's always fantastic just surrounding yourself with the smartest game designers in the world and everybody just chatting and being super excited about it and you know, working together and collaborating and you know, you can just to walk up to people. There's some fantastic drink mixers. So everybody uh, is happy to talk and, uh, and connect. Yeah. Uh, so Mike, you do a great job putting that together. And, and so, yeah, anybody that really is serious about game design, I, I can't recommend that, that event strongly enough.
1: Yeah. It's probably my favorite two days of every year yeah. because I, the great thing about it is we put a black box around it. So nobody can tweet or Facebook out of it a whole weekend or the weekends middle of the week but the whole couple days and uh and what that means is that everybody can just say what's on their mind because they're not afraid they're being recorded yeah you know they're not afraid that their stuff is going to get out on the internet they can say this is where i screwed up and like those are the best stories right every game designer has the point where they just wish they hadn't done that thing and to be and to be able to talk about it in a room full of people who've done probably that very thing, and really don't ever want to do it again, like that is that you you can't beat that.
0: You've actually done a great thing, uh, and you've actually posted online the
1: hundred games that you absolutely positively must know how to play. That's true. Um, I wouldn't say I, I need to be careful though. I wouldn't say those are my favorite games. Those are the games you have to know how to play to understand game design. Gotcha. Right to understand how games work. But there are games on there I don't really like. Like I don't like Werewolf at all. <laughs> um, I I have found that it is it is incredibly painful. But I don't actually have to experience that pain very long because everybody kills me on turn one. <laughs> they know I'm a good poker player, and poker players are really bad to have in that game. So uh, so they know. Like if we can get Selinker out of the way. Then the rest of the game can probably just go. So I hate that game, but I think it's crucial that you know how to play it. All
0: right, all right, no, fair, 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 enough. So anyway, I recommend again for all the aspiring game designers, which you yes. almost certainly are if you're still listening. Yep. Uh, check out that list of 100 games you must play, Mike Selinker, That That uh, is is great to uh, to know how to play those games. Uh, Ascension, by the way, on that list. <laughs> it is. I, I I appreciate that. So then, what are what are your favorite games? Then, if you want to list a couple that are uh, that are keeping your attention now.
1: Uh, let's see. I think we we busted out code names recently at the uh, Lone Shark Summit. I don't think there's been a a better word game. Well, maybe ever, but at the very least, not in the last like five years or so. Great game. Um, we um, we've been uh, enjoying. Um, I, I enjoy a lot of uh, sort of indie role playing games. Quite a bit. I love the work of people like Luke Crane and, and Will Hindmarch and, and, uh, and folks like that, um, that I I wish I could be that in some ways. Like there's parts of my brain that I think would really enjoy being an indie RPG designer, but I can never, never get, get to doing it. Um, Right. uh, I play uh, Ascension more than any other game, (laughs) Um, uh, but that's, you know, that's uh i think if anybody's listening to this podcast they've already figured out that they like ascension i don't really need to recommend it to them (laughs) Um, maybe maybe, i don't know Um, but uh but i probably play ascension on my ipad more than than i play any other game i um i really like uh lords of Waterdeep quite a bit um uh, weirdly i surround myself with the people who make my favorite games yeah
0: that's funny how that works
1: (laughs) no it's like i don't think a lot of people would think of it that way but fundamentally um the loan shark community the people who are sort of the extended loan shark family are all just people whose stuff i love uh and so there's a decent chance that not only do i know the person who made something i like but that i have gotten to express that to them uh and that they have returned that with i really like your stuff too Right. So, uh, I'm a huge fan of that. Like, uh, Antoine Bauza is another really good friend of mine. Bruno Faiduty. These are people who are just simply the best. Like there just isn't yep. like, you know, um, and so, uh, but the cool thing is we can sit down with each other's games and at any time just have a good time and we'll learn something about our own games that we didn't even know. So that's one of the reasons why, obviously, you know, we're talking now, and I love,
0: I love all of our conversations. Uh, it's we've yep. most of them have not been recorded, uh, no so mystery. that other people get to
1: listen. In, at least as far as I know, well, I would say that that has worked out for us. <laughs> so yeah, there are a number of conversations we have had that we would not like to have had recorded.
0: <laughs> that, this this is true, and I and I hope our uh, our uh, one of our next conversations can be uh be about a project we're working on together that that nobody will get to know about. Yes,
1: well, let's not talk about.
0: Uh, that here. <laughs> So uh if other people uh that are listening want to uh find out more about you or connect with you online, what's uh what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Um well I am Mike Selinker everywhere. Um uh, so you know you just have to go to my Facebook page. I accept all comers, uh, my Twitter account's Mike Selinker. Um Lone Shark Games has its own uh website, its own Lone Shark Games.com, it has a Tumblr account, uh as do I, it has um uh a Facebook and Twitter feed. Uh we really like communicating with people who like our stuff um and even people who don't and so uh definitely come find us and talk to us you also see me at just about every convention so uh although not this weekend the weekend we're talking there's like three big conventions and you and i are both home yep yep an odd
0: an odd choice i have uh i have enough travel coming up and that i've had in the past yeah every now and then you
1: got to take some time off that's exactly what I did. Actually, this this particular string of time is I just said I'm not going to Pax Australia. I'm not going to Board Game Geek. I'm not going to Metatopia. I'm not going to BlizzCon. I'm not going to to GameholeCon or any of these places. Not going to Essen. And everybody's like, "You have the best stuff coming out right now. Why don't you want to go and show it off?" And I, my answer was, "I just made all that stuff. I'm really tired." <laughs> like, like this would be a, the best time possible for me to go out and be really excited about interacting with people except i just want to stay home
0: yep you learn to cherish those times uh after especially after a long convention season so yep. i i appreciate you taking time out of
1: your uh, your rest sorry hold on a second hold on a second you just used a term that doesn't exist anymore did you say convention season that's not a thing
0: convention season every is, every week convention <laughs> season
1: is now 12 months long yeah. <laughs> anyway. That's true. Anyway, I'm glad I, I'm glad you and I took the day off and and could talk about this stuff because it was really fun. Yeah, this was awesome
0: for me. I really appreciate the time. I uh, and I'm I'm hoping we can do this again soon and I approve. Anyway, I, I won't see you at a convention soon.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> I, I will I will see you sometime soon. So thank you again, Mike. Anytime, sir. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer